0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by
0: Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com.
2: Hi, this is Lisa Held, host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I record my show because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories about how your food is produced. At this critical moment in time, stories about how and what we eat are more important than ever. I am so honored to be a part of the HRN community of hosts telling those stories, whether that means hearing from farmers about using soil health to sequester carbon, giving marginalized groups a voice in the industry or just bringing people together over a good meal. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and we need your support to keep Food Radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org/donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting The Farm Report in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Lisa Held coming to you from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guest is plant breeder Michael Mazurek, the co-founder of Row 7, a seed company built by chefs and breeders striving to make ingredients taste better before they ever hit a plate. Michael, thanks so much for being here.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: So there's so much I want to talk to you about. I think before we um, dive into what Row 7 is doing and how you're doing things differently, um, can you give us a quick rundown of what plant breeding is, sort of like plant breeding 101?
1: (laughs) Sure. So there's parts of it that can be uh, really simplified that might look a lot like things you learned in high school biology class with plant squares and we use them. Um, On the other hand, that's also, it's a craft that might look simple, but is like really super powerful. And it is us being able to guide the evolution and change of plants. And people have been doing this for millennia is how we've gone from undomesticated wild species to all the plants and food we have today. Um, And it's continuing. And so uh, there's all of the natural adaptive processes of the plants, and we can guide that directly with cross pollinations and selection. And it's always a matter of what are you selecting for, who are you selecting for, um, and in what settings are you selecting for.
2: Okay. And how, in the lab, how is it different from, say, genetic modification? Genetic modification or engineering? I think that's a question you probably get a lot.
1: Yeah, it is. And yeah. I think the the simple to, you know, genetic, the genetic modification, genetic engineering, uh-huh. or all the different terms, CRISPR is the same. You're looking at um, taking uh, a lot of knowledge you've amassed over a lot of years of research and a lot of investment and if there's one gene that you're interested in changing, you can then go in the plant and uh, with a bunch of different lab-based right. tools, you can make that change. Um, and the differences in plant breeding, we really look at a lot of problems Is there's not, nothing's really that simple. There's not just like the one gene. And I looking at... You know, for a disease to overcome a resistance, it's like in a, in a hospital, you get like one drug and bacteria overcome resistance. And mm-hmm. I think that's some of the challenge you have with that, those single gene approaches. The, the thing that we're doing is we're taking all the natural biodiversity. And if I do a cross-pollination, we're combining, mixing tens of thousands of different genes. And there's all the nuance. And it's, go- and it's going through the plant and looking to see what are all... The best, and so on, one and so it's plant breeding is a it looks kind of like farming and seed saving, but right. there's uh parts that we can apply a lot of appropriate technology, um. But in the end, it's something a really powerful that allows us to work with a lot of genetic diversity and also limits, doesn't limit us to the the known. And so other with other approaches, we're limited to what we understand and what we can conceptualize. And we don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown, maybe discovered along the way.
2: Right. Hearing you talk about it, Makes me wonder, how did you get interested in plant breeding?
1: I didn't know plant breeding existed uh, until <laughs> most, I got I, there.
2: Most people probably don't, right?
1: Most people don't. No, and I think suddenly uh, there's been a lot more conversation mm-hmm. about that in the past few years, and it's been really exciting. And for me, as I'm in a craft, that there's very few people left doing it. So uh, we're very invested in trying to find ways to support that and kind of rebuild this infrastructure that, um, unfortunately, we've let erode. Um, so I was studying human health and all the different compounds you can use, um, like the pharmaceutical side, when someone gets sick, you can intervene okay. with medicine. And all these compounds I was studying in my biochemistry courses, in my last biochemistry courses, we started to learn about plants. And I, I raised my hand and I was like, wait, why are we learning about plants? It's like human health. Mm-hmm. And the professor just obviously said well don't don't you know like all the pharmaceuticals you're interested in they're discovered in plants or microbes and we just learned how to synthesize them and that's the first time i really thought about all of the complex aspects of how plants are have these compounds that are critical to our health and modulator health and if we can use them more on the proactive side rather than the reactive side they can prevent these problems then. So I had a a little career crisis, ended up in a lab at Cornell researching hot peppers. And um, when my advisor then went on to other roles in academia, it was uh, a thing where the local growers were looking for the seed she was helping them with, is the seed industry had largely neglected the Northeast as a margin. And so it was this call to, for someone to step up. Um right. so uh and here I am.
2: So you were doing research for a long time and yeah. now you've got row seven. Um uh, now we have row
1: seven, yeah.
2: And and you started row seven with Dan Barber, one of the most famous chefs in the world. Um so it's I guess a little unsurprising that it's a project that emphasizes flavor first. Right. Um what does breeding for flavor look like? Was that new to you?
1: The the way we're doing it now certainly is, and it's really exciting. Mm. Um, I was always selecting for flavorful things, things I like to eat. Um, the The challenge I had at the time was, as I was finding things that were delicious, uh, I was really excited about. There wasn't necessarily a, a market, a way to get that shared with people. And if I shared it with someone, they would say, "Oh, this is delicious. How can I get some of this?" And say, "Well, it's." Well, it's complicated, uh, uh, so row seven helps remove that complication. Um, the thing we're doing with flavor now that I couldn't have imagined, and which is the big eureka for me with Dan, is when I started working with chefs, you start to understand the intersection of what I could do with technique in the kitchen, okay, and you see how they're interpreting things, how they're trying to do things, and then. Um, they can show you things, flavors, textures, techniques. You start to understand a crop that you thought you knew so well. I got my PhD in hot peppers. Mm. A chef uh, here a few months ago showed me things she was doing with hot peppers that just made me completely question everything I knew about peppers. (laughs) So it's really exciting for someone that knows these plants so intimately just to have your eyes opened over and over again.
2: Right. And so does that then affect your process? in terms of how you breed based on, like, if a chef shows you something maybe you didn't expect in terms of how it's being used?
1: Oh, completely. Yeah. And increasingly now, we, we'd always, like, taste things as we went. But now... Um, We are. We used to be just trying to. What's the quickest way we can to like heat this up, cook it, taste it? And we were doing a microwaving and stuff. But Mm -hmm. now uh, our assays of all the plants. will harvest them when we are. We're sautéing. We're roasting in convection ovens. They're just today. I was added where there's a braising step that we're going to be looking at. So it's it's applying lots of their techniques in streamlined ways to just hundreds of plants. And Mm. so it's a lot more tasting with. Technique and their insight of what they're after.
2: Right. And you have sort of a network of chefs now that is working with Row 7 to help you do that?
1: Yeah, Row yeah. 7. It's a great network of chefs in the U.S. and internationally uh, that are all bringing their techniques their cultures things that they're trying to do with these crops and also the partner growers that they have that often they're sourcing from or can see the plants right next door it's just so exciting to get all these people participating in an area where plant breeding where the trend had been to really decrease participation now there's this upswelling Mm.
2: So, so what does that exactly look like? Like when you, like, can you give me an example of a, um, a seed you're testing right now, a crop and like someone growing it and a chef that's using it and what that looks like?
1: Yeah. So the, the process, it can start with something like, um, so a chef has an idea, uh, a grower has a challenge, but there's this, some inspiration mark. And then we'll start to do cross pollinations to bring plants with different characteristics together. We'll share, populations things are still segregating or it's not stable um or things that are rather stable with often with the grower that's working with the chef um they're providing some feedback on what works on their farm what doesn't regionality is really important for the different parts of the u.s and beyond And then when it gets in the kitchen, the chef is giving us feedback on either what they're doing with it. Like we tried to nixtamalize it. And so now Mm. we have readers saying like, what does that mean uh, to my grains? I haven't thought about that technique before. And so as that feedback from the grower and the chef comes in, then we are changing what we select from next year, where Mm. we go with another cross. And so it's it's an iterative process that, we will have a different trial stages will be released to the row seven catalog as experimental varieties, So everyone else gets a chance to participate once we think we're onto something. And then finally it's kind of the, the tried and true variety in the catalog.
2: That's that's so interesting. Um, and so actually I was going to ask you, you know, you've right now you've kind of focused around, um, chefs trying these out and, um, You mentioned the seed catalog. Like, are the seeds just available to any farmer if they want to start growing these?
1: Yeah, it's totally available, and that's how the it started. And we, when the collaboration with Chef Barbara and I, we started to realize we were onto something really cool, and we wanted to share it beyond just us and this our collaboration between right. two people and so yeah, anyone can go to rose7seeds.com and order a packet to several pounds of the seed um, the, whatever's appropriate to them and yeah it's something for anyone to try and also not try before everything's finally done so there's a chance for feedback so it's not just something filtered and finished then you can try it and see if it works for you or not there's a chance to participate in the development process with us which is really exciting
2: oh cool um one thing that I found really fascinating um, in something I read about row 7, I think it was Dan who said it, um, that the flavor and aroma compounds, the same ones that make tomatoes so mouthwatering, for instance, often derive from essential nutrients. It's nature's way of telling us what we should be eating. That is so... So can you can you give an example of that, like a compound in a plant that works that way
1: yeah <clears throat> and so my one of my favorite ones is lycopene
2: okay so yeah. that's the tomato and, yeah, yeah. And it's in
1: a tomato and a watermelon mm. and so you can do the experiment yourself if you get tomatoes from the market that are in season right now yeah of different colors so if you get a yellow tomato a red tomato or in watermelons if you get it there's a yellow watermelons right. and the red if you just cut into them you'll see the color difference and if you smell them taste them the different colors smell and taste differently. And so you're getting different aroma compounds because you have the red lycopene from the tomato or the watermelon. Mm. And then if you have the yellow, uh, you're getting different carotenoids um, that have structurally different breakdown to different aroma volatiles. And they'll, so you can be working with different carotenoids that we need for antioxidant nutrition. And then you're experiencing different aromas that break down. And so that's an idea of how we can, uh, smell when things are ripe. And so if you smell a ripe peach, any fruit you smell that's ripe, um, a lot of the flavors you get uh, from a lot of vegetables, especially fruit, what you're smelling are breakdown products of essential carotenoids, fatty acids, or essential amino acids that we need to get. And so we co-evolved with these plants to be able to find those based on the aroma And in turn, the plants get their seeds dispersed. And so it's this really ancient evolutionary thing that we've gotten away from. And so it's great to see it coming back. And it's also wonderful because it means when you're looking for something that's more flavorful, it's not just something selfish or, you know, some aloof from something. (laughs) It's actually you are improving the nutrition for the food you buy and serve to your family. It's better if it's tastier.
2: Right. So do you actually think about that, the specific nutrients? Like when you're doing your reading, are you like, oh, we want to make these tomatoes potentially have more lycopene?
1: We try to be aware of that, okay, um, but not let it guide everything mm. because there's so much about nutrition we don't know. We get you know different nutrition reports all the time about something's good or not right. good. Um, but there are things that we can cue in on as kind of the constants. Um, the important thing to know is if you're looking at beta carotene, of course that's good for you. However, it's not the only thing. And so it's easy to get too focused on one thing, but holistically, right um, you know we're in, and we can move beyond to looking at specific nutrient uh, to being able to look at something's overall antioxidant capacity, mm-hmm. and we can run those more holistic assays as well. One of the big things is if you eat something uh, and you're kind of it's in your diet for a while, are you feeling better? Are you feeling more vital? And that's, I think, one of the best indications of nutrition.
2: Right. And I guess, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you can think about like, all right, let's sort of maximize this nutrient. But then one of the amazing things about plants is sort of the intricate ways that all the nutrients interact with each other. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's like you say, I want more beta carotene, but there's some other nutrient that helps your body absorb that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And and,
1: and then we're just learning so much about how it's maybe not our nutrition, but our gut microbiome nutrition that in turn nourishes us. So a big part of what I do is, and my, my son was asking me the other day, he's in kindergarten, he was asking me, <clears throat> he kind of challenged me a little bit with some good conversations, like, Dad, what is it with the seeds again? You, you're really into it this summer, right? <laughs> What's going on? <clears throat> and I told him, like, well, I'm trying to make vegetables taste better. And he's like, uh, oh, okay. He says, I can be done with that. And so he's thinking, like, great, when I'm fed these, I'll like them more. But what I'm looking at is he'll eat more. And I just know if yeah. he's eating more of these things, That's better. And so for nutrition, we know it's a win to make these vegetables more desirable.
2: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a minute with more with Michael from Row 7.
0: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a
1: Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg.
0: Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried
1: chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu, and Kitade Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com
0: all right
2: we're back this is lisa held you're listening to the farm report on heritage radio network i'm here with michael from row seven um before the break we were talking about fascinating plant breeding and nutrients and plants and um we were talking a lot about breeding for flavor and um one thing i wanted to ask you about is breeding for other characteristics so you know in the face of changing climate, I'm thinking about can you breed these vegetables for disease resistance or resilience to extreme weather things like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's all critical and one of the things we're committed to is growing the seed and breeding for organic systems. Uh, Many of the, they really work in other systems, of course, too. But by working in organic systems, we're making sure that we're selecting for plants that can withstand all those things naturally. We can't rely on the chemical crutches that are increasingly scrutinized. We have to have plants that work for those systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So often as we put plants out and On real farms, there's the diseases the farmers would experience are there. And so we're not just selecting for flavor. uh, A a plant that exists uh, is necessary to be delicious. Mm. So we can do a lot of just practical selection for looking at the healthiest plants um, and trying them in different regions. Um, There's also a lot of information we have where. Compatible with all the organic traditional plant breeding as we're doing these cross pollinations, which individuals we select, the generations we can't be there on all those farms, every farm. There are some tools we can use, some tests, some assays we can use to see if those plants have a disease resistance gene or not. In Mm. some cases, it's more. Complicated. You can't just do a single test. um You know, the other thing is with like this past spring, there's a lot of challenges people had with the late wet season. Mm, yeah. And so one of the things that we have to look at is you know as we're doing these selections for a changing climate, we have new pest pressures, and we're looking at some plants. And one center cut squash in the row seven catalog is specifically to help avoid some of the new emerging pest challenges. But with the compressed seasons, you have to look at You have to have a plant, maybe you can, they'll ripen faster, you can plant later. Um, It's probably going to look different. Um, Or maybe we want a different plant that can substitute for that. And in doing that, as we're creating change, that's one of the important parts our chef network plays in helping to translate to people what to do with these things. If you have things that look different, Mm. um, people need a chance to see, well, what does a chef do with it? How do you incorporate it into... How do you cook with it? What do you do with it? Right, Um, And to to sample it and see like, wow, this is delicious. It's even, it's better than the substitution.
2: Right. And when you, when you develop the seeds, are you also thinking about like where they are going to be grown? Like does climate matter in terms of um, like this seed is better for farmers (coughs) in the Northeast or this one is better for a more dry region? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so there's, and that's a important point. So there's some crops that are, broadly adapted our cucumbers and our butternut squash tend to do well most places but mm. we know uh for the butternut squash if you're in a place with a really short growing season you have a long growing season squash we can help guide people that maybe that's not the best fit um there's different regions have different needs and so Part of what we do through the trialing network is figure out and fine tune what recommendations we can make. Um, There's very few plant breeders left doing this. So we all want to maximize what we can do. Mm. One of the goals we have through row seven is to activate um, and help support more independent plant breeders in more regions. And some of the public plant breeders at universities that is left and help strengthen those networks so that you can have more people working in these sustainable areas in more regions um, as we can't be everywhere ourselves. And also, there's something to be said for individual regions developing their own varietals uh, yeah. of their region. So there's regionalism is, can you grow it here? And then there's regionalism, does it speak of this region, all the reasons you might travel there to go experience it, can the food action, the food is also critical to expressing that culture. So Mm -hmm. how can we support that development in place?
2: Right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was just reminded that I want to ask you, this might sound like a silly question, but I just had never thought about it. And leading up to this, you know, I was thinking a lot about breeding, and we've been talking about seeds. So you create these Vegetables, and then it's time to sell the seeds to farmers, right? Right. How do you, what does seed farming actually look like? Like, do you have to grow, I would imagine you have to grow the plant to a full plant, right? And then what happens to that vegetable? Right?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> like, a, a great question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and so the, the whole seed process mm-hmm. and the idea of seed growers being before the produce growers is important. And as we're looking at, organic agriculture domestic production of organically grown seed it's an area where we know we have to build the capacity so these people Mm. you're talking about we need to help them improve their scale their efficiency more of them to kind of broaden this network for some crops it looks very similar to growing the crop for food if you're going to grow uh, dry seeded crops like grains dry beans there's a lot of the crops that it looks really the same because mm. you're harvesting what you could replant. Um, for things like carrots and beets, it looks, it can look pretty weird because you'll harvest it like the stage you would normally eat it mm-hmm. and then to the seed production they're biannual so they take two years so you're putting these back in the ground potentially the next year, and then they flower the next year. Huh. Things like cucumbers. Yeah, or um, like tomatoes. Yeah, so tomatoes, there's an o- definite <laughs> opportunity. Do you have like all this, when you put out the seeds, you have all this leftover tomato, yeah, uh, sp- squash. You have all this great squash and some very delicious things we've selected. So we can find ways for that to be used. If we do the seed harvest in a commercial kitchen, then that can get used for a local Uh, Business or a food pantry. Um, And then some things like a cucumber, what you were harvesting for seed is if you've ever let one go in your garden, it's gotten Mm -hmm. away from you, come back from vacation, and there's this big log uh, where the cucumbers Ah, used to be. That's what we get the seed out of. So we need, one of the challenges is there's some things where we're going to take a crop much longer in the field, so lettuce, mm-hmm. uh, cucumber, zucchini. We're going to take them beyond when a grower would usually finish harvesting them and keep going. And so that's when some of the extra skill or other characteristics for the seed production come into play. It has to produce a good crop and also good seed.
2: Right. It's so it's so funny. I just I never really thought about it, and it's like. You don't, you don't think about people act, where those seeds come from, you know. Um, and, and actually, I was reading an article about seed production um, in, I guess, Oregon is a lot of seeds are grown there. Actually, yeah. before I ask you this question, so where are they mostly grown for row seven now? Like, do you have farmers around in New York that grow the seeds? Or? We have
1: farmers in New York. Okay. And so we're exclusively on organic farms throughout the U.S. Mm-hmm. Both things were really important to us and expand in if we let ensure we're investing in those regions that so we can build those regions um, and the capacity of those regions to get good, sustainable organic seed production in the U.S. We shouldn't rely on imported seed to be able to grow our food. That's right. Scary. Um, so um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, parts of it are quite dry. Mm. And so the crops that need to dry down at the end of the season fit well there. Uh, crops that are uh, a wet seeded crop we go, so tomatoes mm-hmm. a quintessential example uh, that can also work well in the northeast and so we work with seed growers across the region uh, across the US uh, p- putting things where it's appropriate, where it'll give the best crop and also trying to figure out how can we expand scale to help with the affordability and access um, at the same time.
2: Right, and is... Um- is contamination ever an issue when you're growing them? Like, I, I read this article about how, because when you're growing for seed, you really want to preserve exactly what that seed is, right? Like, the row seven seed that you've spent right. so much time developing. And I, I read that, like, in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, like, a lot of times um, organic seed seed can be contaminated with, like, canola, um, and that's a, right. a problem. Is that <laughs> is that something you have to worry about? How do you... can
1: yeah. And it's that. something with our, our beet seed we mm. monitor carefully. There's really? there's Roundup Ready sugar beets. So we have to ensure mm. we don't get those genetics in our beet for one, for the organic certification, if that traits those traits would come in and all and second, because you know, the sugar beets are not the delicious badger beet that was worked so hard on. Right. Um, then someone
2: would buy your seed and it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be that. Right, so yeah.
1: from both senses. And so you need to isolate crops so they won't cross pollinate. And as we've been expanding this network, there are some hurdles we've been experiencing. And as we work on solving those, um, I think that's something that helps grow and expand the community and and we can also shed a light on them as we go we try to be very open and show the process we're trying to build um and so it's it's a sector that with increased investment by us and others will be able to expand the options that people have and make organic seed which we think is much more sustainable and probably performs better um something that's cost competitive with the larger scale seed that now it's just a matter of scale is often the differential.
2: Right. So what does the row seven catalog look like at this point? Like how many seeds... Have you developed?
1: Yeah, we've uh, gotten belong, uh, beyond our initial seven. Uh people are oh, start- that's
2: the, that's why it's called row seven. <laughs> that's
1: uh that's in part. Uh both for the our seven initial offerings and also that's the row in the periodic table where all the new unknown things are yet to be discovered. Cool. So we enjoyed both both aspects. Right. The um and so what, what people will be seeing in the catalog is they'll see uh, an increasing repertoire from some of the things that we had been working on already with Chef Barber and others, mm-hmm. where they'd see a lot of my my squash uh, and cucumbers, uh, the beet uh, and potato from some of my colleagues. And now we're starting to expand out to kind of other crops as we branch out. So the Beauregard pea, which is a fun story of antioxidant nutrition, a purple that holds its color and tastes good. Mm. Um, and so it's purple it's purple Mm. and it's uh in each of our varieties one something that people will see is something that's flavor flavorful and you should enjoy eating and as people are attracted to eating that it's also for each crop there's something larger it's speaking to in terms of sustainability or food waste or Mm -hmm. nutrition or domestication and so the border guard pea it's a Beautiful purple pea, tastes good, my kids like it, and it really talks about the ecology of crop domestication. If we want to get geeky, it it goes there too. Um, And increasingly, we'll see a lot of the other breeders we're working with in other parts of the U.S., public plant breeders and independent breeders, some of their offerings that we're moving through, getting Chef's Dev input, moving it into the experimental phase of the catalog for everyone to provide input. Uh, and so there's a, a whole bounty that's starting to crop up.
2: Mm, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm kind of moving in reverse right now, but was the honey nut the first thing, like the, the, the <laughs> seed that started at all? <laughs> it was, yeah.
1: So honey nut was that the Eureka moment when it was Dan recognizing that there was this potential to be able to be more involved in the creation. Otherwise, mm. chefs often get what someone breeds, and a seed company decides to offer, and a grower can make grow in their region, and the chef is then gets kind of what's at the end of that process, right? And doesn't get a chance to participate. And as we work to get growers to participate more in the breeding process, the 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 light bulb went off that as a chef he had an invitation to participate more, and as a plant breeder, I had I could see that. What he was doing in the kitchen with my variety was something that was uh, I wasn't doing, and I could select for not just a neutral taste of the squash, uh, I could select for something that would sing if it was roasted. Mm. And that was the light bulb. And what you see then is, as we talked about together, what could we do? That was the genesis of the 898 squash, where we really intensified the flavor, the nutrition, um, and made it be able to store longer so it's more sustainable, less waste. Right. Um, and we're on to other things, too. So it was, uh, yeah, the honey It was the genesis where we could see the potential of working together and now you see the potential of us trying to get many chefs and breeders to work together with their growers
2: yeah you talked a lot about how you learn so much from working with chefs about what you can do with a vegetable and then you take that and incorporate it into your work um what about feedback from growers like what kinds of things do you hear from them that you then use in your process
1: So, yeah, the growers will talk about uh, some things like the germination, how vigorous is a plant, does it compete well, uh, how does it get growing, how soon to harvest. They'll kind of things about how easy it is to harvest. Um, as we're looking at things that are good for uh, growers to do, that it helps them get their harvest in, and once they get it to store it well, and sometimes as we have different Crops that we might use differently. Like the border guard you have to pick a little later for it to get its full mm. sweetness. You have to get some peas in the pot that's beyond a standard snow pea and it tastes great. And once we can share that their success improves, um, but they'll share about the disease resistance. Um, and they're often, uh, bringing some of the harvest home to their own kitchens and cooking and sharing their, their flavor feedbacks as well.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, Well, we have to wrap up. Um, Before we do, um, what's the future look like for row seven? Like, what, what are some things we can look forward to?
1: Yeah, I think people will see this increasing cornucopia of, mm-hmm. of offerings. Um, they'll see a lot of this great increased participation and in terms of more people being able to get engaged in the seed system, hopefully we'll be able to continue all these land grant universities to continue to hire uh plant breeders and hopefully it's something that expands we have this mission but we don't necessarily we just want to hold it to ourselves so we want to see a lot of other people also trying to work in a similar space we want to try to our motto is a flavor mutiny uh, we'd <laughs> love for people to join the mutiny
2: <laughs> all right thank you so much for being here michael
1: no uh, thank you it's been a pleasure
2: so thank you all so much for listening to the farm report on heritage radio network a quick reminder that today is the last day of our 10th anniversary summer fundraising drive. So please go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate and you can show love for this show by selecting the farm report in the designation drop-down menu. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it and share it. I'll see you next week.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.